Welcome to The Lived Experience. I'm your host, Joel Kleber, and on today's show, I'm interviewing Carly Baxter. Now, Carly Baxter reached out to me on social media and just shared me a message about her um, story um, with having a mother who had bipolar, and um, her mother, unfortunately, chose to end her life, I think, when Carly was 19, so um, it's a a very intense story, Um, but Carly was fantastic, and she was very brave in opening up and, and sharing it in a podcast format, so um, I think it's a fantastic thing what Carly did by reaching out and proactively wanting to share her story on the show. That's what it's about. That's what the lived experience is about, the sharing real people's story about mental illness that goes beyond the traditional mental health narrative. So big thanks to Carly Baxter. She's a great lady and also very successful in her own right. So really appreciate it. And if you want to come on the show yourself, please feel free to look in the show notes for how you can join as well. And without further ado, Carly Baxter. Hi, everyone. So I'm with Carly Baxter, who reached out because you you stumbled across my podcast on Spotify with its, all of its five subscribers and you, you stumbled <laughs> across it. You had a listen and it resonated with you. So you, you sent me a message and I thought, well, what, you know, you've had a pretty intense experience with, with mental health and it's really affected your life in a, a lot of ways. So I thought, why not get you on and, and share your lived experience because um, it's a very, very, um, from what I've, from what you've told me just briefly in writing, it's a very, You've been for a lot, and um, I think the stories like yours is very important to tell. So, maybe do you want to introduce yourself, Carly, about and your and your uh, experience with um, with mental illness. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Joel. First of all, and I think you've got a few more than five subscribers now. <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, basically, I grew up uh, with a single mum with bipolar disorder. Uh, we didn't really know she had bipolar disorder until sort of her late. 30s I guess or mid 30s um yeah um that's quite interesting till late 30s because generally it's very uh you know my mum was diagnosed very early on like a lot of people they have an episode before they're 15 16 generally and that's when they get diagnosed it wasn't until the late 30s yeah so um she did have a lot of episodes and I think she was sort of very good at hiding it so you know she would go to the doctors for example uh, and she would be very calm in that moment or um, try and hide it. Mm. I think she was very good at hiding her her demons, I guess you would call them. Um, but then things would pop up like multiple suicide attempts, deep depressions, um, hypermania, OCD, um, all of those sort of things. But, you know, when you're a child growing up with just that one caregiver, you think that's normal. Like you think, oh, well, mum's just very you know, up and down and that's her life. Um, So for me it wasn't really until I started spending more time with, you know, my best friends, mum and dad, families and thinking, okay, this family dynamic is totally different to mine. So um, and then, you know, sort of around the age of seven or eight I sort of twigged that, okay, something's up with mum but I'm not quite sure what it is. So, yeah, yeah. my first uh, shock moment, I guess, was uh, I think I was about 11 years old uh, and my stepdad came and picked me up from school and I didn't know what was happening, nothing was told to me uh, and pulled in the driveway and there's two ambulances in the driveway. Yeah, um, yeah so she'd taken too many tablets Um walked inside and they're giving a charcoal trying to get her to vomit. <laughs> mm. And yeah, I just forget never forget that scene of, you know, she kept looking at me and saying so sorry and apologizing to me and 
and yeah, it was just a very, very stressful moment, I guess. Um, so they ended up taking her over to La Trobe, I think it was one of the emergency hospitals over there um, in the ambulance and my stepfather and I followed in the ambulance and yeah, we got to the hospital and there was a lot of waiting and uh, I remember the doctor coming out and I asked the doctor, you know, is my mum going to be okay? And she just looked at me bluntly and said, I don't know. So I thought that was a bit harsh. Mm. So in that moment I was like, wow, this, you know, my mum could die. You know, she was on life support. Um, she did recover. Um, but, yeah, it was it was really traumatic, as you can imagine. And <laughs> what support was there for you, Carly, after that traumatic event? What support was provided to you or was even offered or? Uh, I don't recall any support, to be honest. Mm. Um, I remember mum was in hospital for a while. Uh, and then when she finally came home, uh, I didn't get any debriefing, didn't get to talk to anybody. Um, it was kind of let's not tell anybody about it. Um, so it was very difficult to process. Um, but I had this feeling that, you know, there was something that I sort of became not the parent, but I became very mature mm. at 11 um, just because intuitively it's going to sound really weird, but ever since I was five years old, I knew that I wouldn't have my mum for a long time. I don't know how I knew that. Um, so after that experience, um, every time that she would feel manic or have a fight with her partner and go to take off in the car, for example, mm. I would just get in the passenger seat just so I was there with her just in case she did something. Um, but, yeah, as, as far as support goes, um, for me I had lots of friends uh, and some other parents of my friends um, and a couple of teachers in my school that I confided in, um, but no real counselling per mm. se. Yeah. Now, did you, when your mum was in hospital, did you go and visit her when you when you were younger? Was it, Did you go to the psych? Was yeah. she in a psychiatric ward at the time for a bit or? Uh, yeah, yeah, so she's been in the psych ward a couple of times, uh, which is quite distressing in itself. Um, I don't know why, but, you know, you can they just walk you straight through the, you know, the common room with yes. all the other patients and it's quite distressing <laughs> when you're young, thinking, yep, yep. Oh, surely my mum's not this bad, you mm -hmm. know, or it's, yeah. It's very confronting um, and, they, yeah, you're right in what you said. We'll touch on that moment for a Carla because a lot of people don't realise that. If you have mm -hmm. a parent in there, well, I don't know what it's like now, but, yeah, you're right. You are just literally walk straight through the whole whole thing. So we were in um, one in Perth called Greylands, which is a massive, massive facility in the, in the city. Yeah, and you mm -hmm. walk through the whole thing and you just people are zonked out. There's people with cigarettes on their legs and burning themselves. Yeah. And it's it's, yeah. it's just a very scary place. And if you're a young kid and you've got no idea what's going on or you want to see your mum, mm -hmm. you've sort of got to go through there. But, um, yeah, I just don't yes. think anyone realise how traumatic mm -hmm. that experience itself is and there was no real thought or consideration for yourself um, to even explain to you, hey, maybe just be prepared, you know, your mum's in a bit of a different hospital. You might, you know, it, it, I can't yeah. believe that even even though it's not really that long ago, but no one even considered to uh, to explain that to yourself before taking you in there. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I mean, you just want to go there and you, you don't want to look at anyone else. You <laughs> just want to hug your mum, you know. <laughs> so, and, um, yeah, I mean, a couple of times she was in solitary confinement in a padded cell because she was on suicide watch, mm -hmm. um, you know, and she had the same treatments that your mum had in those places and, you know, 
the drool and not really there but not really there. Um, you know, she would always come home worse though and there was no post-care plan. There, there was nothing uh, that I'm, I was aware of that, you know, the family's got to, okay, well, when you get home, you know, your mum's going to be like this and you can support her with this and what do you need? What do you need yeah, for support? None of that. I mean, there was just nothing of that. So I don't know if that was a small town thing or if that was just the time, which I think that's just in honest, general. hasn't yeah. changed much. <laughs> no, it hasn't changed much and you're right. We'll just talk, we'll talk, we'll, we'll, people might be shocked to hear that, Carly, but it's right. The uh, the person will get to the end of their treatment or whatever and they'll eventually be well enough to go home. Um, it sounds like your mum was sent home when she wasn't well, whereas yep. which is a bit of a concern that they would do that, whereas with my mum she was probably a bit better when she came out. But, um, yeah, you're right, the support's very minimal. I think the most we had was you might have a caseworker or something come around on the second, every second or fourth week or whatever it was, but it was for the mum. It wasn't for the children as well. So the children were never consideration. Right. It was just to see how the, their um, – their patient was going, and I presume, but you didn't even have that at all. You didn't have any any social worker or nothing come around to the to the home after. No, I didn't have anything at all. Yep. Nothing, no support whatsoever. Um, but you sort of, I don't know. For me, it taught me resilience. I mean, I I try and look at the positives of, of every situation. Obviously, there's negatives as well. Um, but yeah, but it's not. Yeah, I mean, another experience I guess that really stood out for me was when um, I was living in Sweden on exchange and my mum and stepdad came to visit me in Sweden and I didn't really know how bad mum was. I thought she was tracking quite well. And we went on a holiday. We went to Stockholm and we stayed in these big tall ships. It's like a big youth hostel sort of thing uh, on the water in the middle of winter. And in the middle of the night she went missing and... um, my stepdad woke me up at 3 o'clock in the morning looking all over the ship for her and we found her eventually um, just in her nighty, hiding in a rubbish bin. Um, she thought that some bad people were chasing her and it was below zero. Mm. Um, i never forget that moment of just I felt like in that moment I'd really lost my mum um, just with this overwhelming empathy compassion I just felt so sad so bad confused and scared um yeah so that that sort of yeah I just felt so bad for her in that moment but but you're in another country and it's like oh okay so I had to draw on those coping mechanisms when I was younger to try and help get my mum through the situation and myself um yeah my stepdad decided he couldn't handle it uh, so he sort of left me and mum mm. uh, and uh, I took my mum back to the place where I was staying. Uh, my stepdad and my mum ended up separating and I uh, had to fly my mum home back to Melbourne and, um, yeah, there was a few other bits and pieces in there too. But, that's, yeah, to cut a long story short, <laughs> um, she had a psychiatric nurse that was caring for her and he organised the flight back to Melbourne and cared for her and picked her up from the airport back uh, in Tongaree. Mm. And um, as it turned out, um, I came back from Sweden early because I knew mum wasn't right and she needed to pack everything and move somewhere. We ended up moving to a place called Ocean Grove. Yep. Um, Near Geelong, yeah. Outside Geelong. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, my stepdad was out of the picture. My mum was 
being looked after by this psych nurse, but when they picked me up from the airport, they were together and apparently he was having a relationship with my mum, which is totally unprofessional. Mm. Uh, so that sort of tainted my, what do you call it, my um, trust in the mental health system, I guess, again. Um, yeah, so anyway, it turns out that uh, they, well, they took me out for dinner and I remember him asking me, you know, do you think it's okay that I'm dating your mum? And I just looked at him and I said, well, you're the psych nurse, buddy, so what mm. do you think? <laughs> how, and how old were you then, Carly? Were you 18, 19 if you are on exchange or 17? Uh, I just turned 19, so I went to Sweden when I was 18 yeah. for 12 months and then came back when I was 19. Um, yeah, so he basically just left her, just dropped her and actually left her off all her medication. Really? Uh, so she had no lithium nothing <laughs> so um i was basically left with mum with no resources and she fell into a very deep depression uh she wouldn't get out of the bed she wouldn't eat um i couldn't leave the house because she was scared that oh if you leave maybe i'll slip my my wrists or something yeah. so I literally had to babysit her 24 yeah. 7 um even you know going for a walk on the beach she would be scared sorry I don't want to walk on the beach I might try and drown myself in front of you you know so there's constant flight response living I sort of stop you there Carly you actually mentioned that for people who might not know that um I don't know if it's typical of all people with bipolar and don't get angry at me if I say it but the threat of suicide against children um is a common thing I guess that in terms of conversations right they might say oh when I come home I might not be here I'm going to do this as you've described I think that's happened mm -hmm. to me as well, but it's, I presume it's happened to a lot more people as well. So that's one thing as a as a child or as a young person, you're not you've not only got to deal with all this stuff, but you've got to deal with the worry or the anxiety of that as well happening. Um, you know, it's just it just yes. it's just a very big head. You know, gives you a lot of head issues on yourself almost <laughs> in a way. But yeah. um, that's one thing that people might not know about is that the threat of suicide is used a lot against children. I think who have a parent with a serious mental illness. Um, it's very I think common. part of it is a, a cry for help as well. Mm. Um, yeah, but no, that's a really good point. I, I sort of think it's like um, <laughs> there's a there's a lady called Tamari Hill who's really good on YouTube. I really like her stuff and I've had one chat with her but she uses this term called emotional incest. When it, it's, it sort of sounds bad but it's sort of basically where the roles are reversed whereas the parent uses the child as their emotional support or as their mm -hmm. emotional you know, their yep. emotional thing and they're putting all their problems on the child um, whereas it's supposed to be the other way around. The parent's supposed to be your emotional support whereas with a lot of people, well, from my experience and from what yours is, I, I presume, as well, is you had that, you were the emotional support. So you had to, you had all the stuff lumped on you, you had all this stuff thrown at you and you were just expected mm -hmm. to deal with it and I think that's quite common for a lot of kids who have a parent with mental illness. Yeah, I think it is too. Um, yeah, it's a lot to, to take on. But I think, yeah, and it depends on your, you know, who you are as a person as well. Like for me, I've always been very sensitive, very empathetic, very compassionate with a huge heart, um, which is awesome, but it can also be a double-edged sword. So I think learning how to manage that without becoming, using it productively without letting it overwhelm you and sort of that's sort of my biggest lesson that I still sort of try to, to master as I go along now. But um do you think that came from your lived experience or did you think that was just something always in you or hmm. I don't know, to be honest. Maybe a combination of 
life experience and just being, oh, I don't know, maybe because it's an only child thing or, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> now, you spoke about coping before. So what were your coping mechanisms that you used um, when you were a younger person? Um, because there's a lot of uh, hopefully, you know, one day this stuff can be heard by, let's say, teenagers or younger people as opposed to them having to go to a website and read, which they're not going to do. Yeah. So as a younger yeah. person, what did you do uh, to cope with this situation, which is quite common uh, for a lot of kids? Yeah, um, well, negative and positive coping mechanisms, I guess, like a lot of it would be sometimes I would just stay in my room a lot and, you know, read or listen to music. Music was always a great yeah. outlet for me. Um, creativity, so I've always been a big painter, drawer, um, those sorts of things. And also just talking to really close friends that, that I knew I could trust with the information um, and a few parents of those friends and just trying to build a little network, I guess. Um, so those were sort of the main coping mechanisms, but um, that was sort of before mum ended up suiciding. Um, so if you would like to just backtrack <laughs> to, yep. to what happened there, um, yeah, basically in Ocean Grove where we were, I wasn't coping um, with her, so I ended up taking her to emergency and uh, I told the doctor that, she, you know, she's this psych nurse has taken her off everything. Uh, she's in a depressive episode. Uh, she's suicidal. She needs lithium. Uh, the doctor sent me home with a counselling session on the next Monday. <laughs> is this at the emergency ward there or was it a? Yeah, I kind of, it was in, where was it? It was near Ocean Grove. Yeah. I can't even remember what, what hospital it was. But um, that's an absolute disgrace. Even back, anything, even back yeah. then, mental illness was known about. It might not have been being talked about or got the attention that it does now, but it was mm. quite it was just as prevalent as what it is now and they would have known, well, they should have known how to deal with that better than just saying that. So that's really yeah, really got me angry hearing that a doctor well, would say that <laughs> to anyone. It kind of just because it was a weekend. So That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. So eventually, on the Monday, we ended up getting her medication and everything. And um, I used to always keep our doors open at night time across from her, so I could keep an eye on her. Yeah. And then one morning, I woke up and my door was closed, and I thought mm, it's a bit strange. And I yeah, opened my door and looked on the floor, and there was her watch, her wallet, and her suicide note. Um, yeah, so. It was quite surreal. I was very calm in that moment because I sort of I felt it coming for some reason. Mm. Um, the house was clean. She must have been super quiet uh, and the car was gone. Um, yeah, so that was <laughs> – I looked into her room and her bed was made and um, she used to have this terrible old alarm clock, big old clunky thing, and it used to make a terrible noise when the alarm went off. And I looked over and it said 11, 11. And in that moment, the alarm went off. It went, and then it died. Like the power didn't go off or anything. The clock just died. <laughs> um, so it sounds really strange, but in that moment, I sort of knew, okay, that's mum leaving now. I just felt that. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, she ended up uh, driving off the Great Ocean Road in her car um, just outside Lawn. So, yeah. Uh, it took them about five days to find her um, with helicopter search party. So apparently the car had gone off the cliff and 
got washed under into some rocks and caves and whatever. So, yeah, yeah so that five days of not knowing if she's alive or dead, I really feel for people that have family that go missing because it's just a terrible feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, after that I did go into a bit of a reactive depression um, for obvious reasons because my mum was mm. my everything, my best friend, my support, but I, even though I was supporting her. Um, so I moved back to my hometown, Leangatha, um, and I sort of didn't want to be around people in that moment. Uh, I also got approached by the mental health ombudsman of Victoria and I had to go through a terrible, terrible court case uh, against this psych nurse who actually had raped many women. One of them was a six-year-old woman in a wheelchair and he ended up in Bowen prison in maximum security for about seven years or so. Um, but he was still allowed to practice after they knew something was up with his misconduct. So that's another story with the Unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> mental health board. But, you know, I had to go there. Mum had just died. I had to go and give evidence and with all these other women. Um, yeah, so it was quite a distressing time especially having to dig up all of that information and go through that because you're 19 at this stage i, th- I think is it 19 yeah <laughs> like i couldn't like <laughs> e- any stage in life if something like this happens to you you know it's it would be you know you, you know you wouldn't blame anyone for doing whatever they whatever whichever way they went so mm. how did you you see obviously you've had a lot of res- lot of resilience just in from you know having the situation you did but how did you get yourself through it because that's a very intense very traumatic and very sad event in anyone's Mm -hmm. life and as I said you could not blame anyone who went on and did whatever they wanted to do if you knew that you'd be like you know you can't judge anyone so how did you continue just 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 being I guess and how did you get yourself through it um I actually ran away and worked with horses for quite a few years. So you're going to work with animals, okay, um, yep, yep. Yeah, yep. so, I mean, I'd always had a passion for horses. Um, I used to go horse riding with my mum since I was little. So, um, yeah, I just sort of followed down that path, ended up, you know, breeding manager, running horse farms and breeding programs and things like that. Um, but I just found that... Uh, just so much had happened to me. There was a few other things with lawyers trying to um, take advantage of me financially with my mum's will and all really? this sort of stuff. And I was just over people, you know. Yeah, <laughs> lawyers, like, hey, bloody hell. Everyone mm. just leave me alone, yeah. So um, and that lawyer ended up not practising anymore either <laughs> what he did. So yeah. all these things happening. But the horses, um, for me, I found them very calming and I enjoyed working with them and it was almost like a meditative um therapeutic almost in a way. Therapeutic. Yeah. 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 So and I've I've read now that there's apparently you can do courses of healing with horses. So it must have been a thing. Mm. So I didn't know it was a thing back then, but um it certainly helped me a lot. Um I did have some counseling sessions. Uh I kind of found that the counseling sessions that I had were just digging up the past and reliving it. Yep. And not, not really helping that much. So I just sort of found my own my own way as I went. Um, I would journal a lot, um, listen to music, um, try and have quiet moments. 
uh, keep distracted uh, and just keep doing lots of different crazy things. Like I went up to to Darwin and worked on a cattle station for one year, um, you know, when I got back from Sweden and, yeah, just tried to basically I tried to live the life that I wanted mum, that mum wanted me to, to mm. live. Um, but yeah. Now what um now what annoys me is hearing as well that you've had no you had no real contact really for you with anyone going out of their way maybe besides maybe with some friends or did some friends families parents know or something or did they did you get any help that way or uh yeah we had some teachers that actually at my school knew my stepdad because my stepdad was a teacher okay um so. They knew what he was like as well. So that's sort of the other side of it. My stepfather was raging, aggressive, narcissistic person. So it was probably a bad combo for my mum to have. Um, so there were lots of family violence growing up as well, lots mm. of threats and things like that. So a lot of the teachers that I had were really supportive in that sense. Um, but uh, there was one lady that actually she was actually a a lawyer and she was helping well I was actually helping her with the case against this psych nurse and she sort of took me under her wing and she was amazing she was kind of like my mentor I guess you could say so I spent a lot of time with her not just going through the court procedures and the court case and everything but just to have her there as she was a very strong woman and she taught me a lot of you know techniques on you know, how to remain calm and, and how to process your emotions and your feelings and things like that. So she was quite instrumental in my life, I think. Mm. Now, because mm. you've just gone through this whole thing and this journey, now there'd be similar people who go through it now. What do you think would be important to someone who, let's say, they had a, grew up in a similar situation to yourself? What would you like to see or what do you think is important to, to have for children or, or kids or young people in this situation? Oh, a lot more support. Mm. What <laughs> um, is support to you? What would have helped you? I think even having like a like a guided group of similar kids going through similar situations, mm. um, you know, obviously it's run by adults, professional adults um, that can facilitate those sort of things or even just having like um, for me being an only child, it would have been nice to have a sort of, a mentorship like yep. a big brother big sister program where you know you just catch up and you vent or you go and mm. do something and just hang out and you know someone that's already been through a similar thing and come through the other side so you know that it's possible and it's going to be okay um yeah i agree yeah. with you on that exactly lived experience yeah. mentor i think is important it couldn't be someone who didn't have that experience because then you'd be automatically dismissing like well, what does this person know it'd have to be someone i think you had experience with what you were going through and there'd be a lot of people like that. And the first thing you mentioned, there actually is a, a, a foundation in um, Victoria called Satellite Foundation who do yes. exactly what you just said at the start where they get kids together and they have all these courses like photography courses, music courses and all that sort of stuff. And all the kids there have got all the similar experiences. They've got parents or a parent with mental health challenges and they bring them together and they do camps and they do young leader courses and all that sort of stuff. And it's why I'm a massive like like I'm always talking about them, even though I never got to do anything with them. Like, when mm-hmm. I, but they would I know that would have just helped me a heap, knowing yeah, that you weren't yeah. you weren't isolated because you, even though yeah, there's a lot of people who have the situations yourself and I did. 
you just feel really isolated at the time when you're a kid because you just don't know because there's no support. Absolutely. There's no one really taking interest in you or anything like that. So, and um, th- that's something that's in place. But they, you know, for me, you know, can you have that in every state? How much more funding can they get? Because we were talking before off camera, I think the time for awareness is over with all these hotlines and all these generic massive brands where they've got an excessive amount of middle managers and marketing people and whatever else. It's like for me, well, the hotlines, yeah, the hotlines are good and all that sort of stuff. But Just what's scratching the, scratching the surface? So, what's an actual yeah. intervention you can make in a kid's life or a young person's life besides a hotline? And that is those programs and stuff like what Satellite does or lived experience mentor sort of thing or some scholarships or some mentor network uh, where we can get people who were once they're identified with this situation can actually get linked up with people. That actually makes a real difference as opposed to what I see, what you probably self see, what's been going on lately in the mental Absolutely. health space. Absolutely. And it's also about, you know, community and, and, you know, getting that support from people that have been through something similar and also public awareness. You know, there's so much public awareness on depression, anxiety. Everyone hears about it mm. every day. Um, which is very important as well, but they're almost like side effects to other things as well, you know, like bipolar or schizophrenia or, you know, other serious illnesses too. But um, I think the general public doesn't still doesn't no. know how to handle those people. They don't. So there needs to be something similar like um, even like like a, I think in the UK there was a, a study done on these crisis cards and they're like, um, for example, if you've been, um, clinically diagnosed with a mental illness um, or significant mental illness, you can have like a card that if you're having a meltdown or whatever the card is, you know, um, hi, my name is blah, hi, I have bipolar. Um, if I give you this card, please take me to a quiet place, give me a glass of water uh, and call this person mm. or family member or cat team or whatever. Because <laughs> um, most people would just call the cops or an ambulance, which is, yeah, maybe necessary in some moments, but they could be avoided as well with those little things. Yeah, they could be avoided. It's a it's a good suggestion. Um, mm. But I don't know what your process was like with getting. So when your mum, because you would have known your mum was getting unwell before she got really unwell. You learn the signs. Yeah. So <laughs> was there anything you were able to do? Did you call anyone, or were you able to maybe call like a doctor, or was there anything you could could have done, mm. or did you try to do um, growing up? Not really. There wasn't really anyone that I would call because in our family it was kind of let's just not talk about it. Mm. So for me it was sort of just spending extra time with my mum, almost like babysitting her, watching her, um, asking her how she's feeling, um, those sort of things. Or I might ring a friend and say, hey, I think my mum's about to, you know, go into a manic episode or whatever. But, yeah, never never called anyone uh professional mm. i guess in that manner from the sounds of it carly anyway if you would have called someone they probably wouldn't have done anything too much well, no, anyway, not from the from sounds my experience, no. so. <laughs> which annoys me because as i said you know before we're the you know we're the ones who know these people the best and like three mm. weeks to four weeks prior with my mom i always knew she was going to get sick and then that would be in but you you could tell a family member or whatever but you couldn't tell anyone because they like oh we have to wait till she gets really unwell before we put her into a, a hospital which is crazy, right? What, it what is. happened to the patient? <laughs> Correct. And that's, but the, the, yeah. then you've got three to four weeks where there's all this risky behavior going on. It's like, well, mm-hmm. what if something happens? Like, for me personally, looking at it from a other perspective, it's like, well, you're negligent because this risk was, you could foresee the risk. You've done nothing about it. Um, and now this person's gone and done something which was preventable. 
because you just haven't had the ability to try and you know deal with that person before they get really unwell. And um, I don't know if like the way the process worked for me because mum used to go a lot into to in and out. You know, have to get really sick. Cops or the ambulance would be called. Yeah, taken yeah. to the emergency room, even though she had an extensive medical history. And then they have to give her a medical mental health assessment or whatever. You know, are mm-hmm. you feeling depressed or are you feeling this? It's like, well, there's a massive list there, and the person's really manic and hyper. So it's mm-hmm. very frustrating that when people actually do need help, what I don't think a lot of people understand is that you you can't just rock up to a psychiatric ward or whatever, especially if you're someone who was a bit difficult. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to speak for your mum, but my mum was difficult when she was unwell. She's not just going to go to a psychiatric ward and say, oh, yeah, mum, well, put me in there. But, you, you know. I don't think many would do that no, by themselves anyway. No, they yeah. wouldn't. And they go, oh, a lot of the time they go, oh, we can only make, she can only go in if she goes voluntary. Well, that, no, not many mm. people with bipolar who are unwell are going to go voluntary into a um, to a psychiatric facility. So, But what annoys me is that the kids like yourself and I would know when they're going unwell what would actually help society is you could bring someone. So this person's, my mum's getting really unwell or my dad or whoever, three to four weeks out and then have someone actually call. We're going to come and check him out or whatever. And then take him in at that stage there, as opposed to mm. waiting for three to four weeks, where there's going to get get more unwell, and then put kids at risk or put whoever else at risk around them. That's true, mm. and you know, to have families be equipped with what to do would be oh, so much help. Yeah, well, did yeah, well, did you get a, like at least a book or something? Because we got, I got nothing. I can, I know that for a fact, we got nothing. So, did you get like <laughs> no. a book or you got nothing? nothing no, like we no. got no take home package. There no. Was no- <laughs> yeah so but those sort of things are really important you know especially with with kids you know you can for example in my experience you know I, I took it personally when mum was manic for example you know especially with oh that your room is a mess and there's like one sock on the floor but then you don't realize that it's part of it's that the illness yeah. yeah I think that's, so, I think it's very important Kylie, yeah. what you said is it's very yeah as a kid you don't know any better because if your parents you know you react to what their behavior is whereas it's very mm-hmm. hard to separate the illness from the person. I think True. it takes to where you get a lot older and a bit more perspective and you go, geez, yeah. I wish I was a bit easier on my mum because it was just the illness talking as opposed to the the, the, the to her talking. Um, and that's what you yeah. don't realise when you get until you get older because when you're young, you know, you take everything that your parents say as gospel when Absolutely, you're young yeah. because you don't know any different. You haven't had any, any other opposite experiences to compare to. So... Yeah, I think things like that is important and, and you know, trying not to take take everything personally and realise that, you know, it's not your fault and it's not their fault. It's it's it is what it is. It's an illness. Mm. Um those sorts of things are important as well to process, especially with kids, you know, some basic education for kids with parents of bipolar. That would be very helpful. And I find mm. the I find the silly thing as well. Like, there's a lot of resources for parents who have a mental illness on how to be better parents. But like, you know, I don't know what your mum was like. My mum was like, I, you know, I'm, I'm normal. I don't know that anything wrong with me, really. Sort of thing. Why would I need your yeah. advice? So I think there's a lot of resources that are created for people, and I don't think they're really effective at that much in, in what's being done. But also the distribution of the funds from the governments get is for me is going completely out of whack. Oh, yeah. To it's going to these <laughs> massive brands where you've got, you know, there's a bipolar Australia report which I read for the Royal Commission into Victorian one. I think it was like estimated like 1,600 people committed suicide from bipolar out of like 3,800 or something in Victoria. So it's mm-hmm. pretty much one in two people who committed suicide around about that number had bipolar. Yet the general public would not know that, 
and nor does the funding refl- is reflective of that to those organisations to actually help uh, these people to try and to re- reduce that effect. That is a very good point. Mm. And that, that's what needs, there's the awareness right there. What do you think would have helped your mum looking back on it now? Like what do you think would have helped uh, or made it a bit easier anyway? I think having well, su- supportive family, she had me as a supportive family, mm. but um, as far as the mental health side of it, I think doctors could be more compassionate, patient and understanding, um, maybe better screening of staff. <laughs> um, also just basic things like instead of, you know, go back to the basics, you know, um, learn to read your signs if you're getting manic, um, you know, maybe cut down on the coffee. Everyone forgets about basic you know, health, eating mm. well, sleeping well, reduce caffeine, alcohol, those sorts of things. So if you can manage those things, maybe the mania and the depress- depression wouldn't be as extreme if if because your biochemistry comes from what you eat as well. So but there's never any talk no. on food. No, eating healthy. <laughs> Not yeah. that food alone can, can cure or, or manage things like bipolar, obviously there is a a need for the medication, absolutely, but I think they need to be a little bit more hand-in-hand because they are symbiotic in a way. No, I agree with you, Carly. Like, uh, yeah, Mm. but they're getting the base base level with exercise, fitness, a bit of exercise, a bit of nutrition, um, community, you know, being involved in some things so that you have to get up and about and stuff and that's that's the important base and then obviously the medication and and all that sort of stuff on top of it. But um, mm-hmm. I think what you said then as well, I want to touch on it because I think this is important for people to know as well. I don't know if it, I want to speak for doctors now, but I, I always got a sense that the general, the GPs or let's say the doctors at the emergency room, any time there was a mental health person, they didn't want anything to do with them. Nurses were the same. I can understand it could be very difficult from their perspective to deal with them. But mm-hmm. I, I get a sense even still that if it's a mental health patient with the GP or with a doctor or with a nurse, they're not treated the same as someone, let's say, if they've got a broken arm or a broken leg. It's from my no. experience anyway. I don't know about yours. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely, exactly the same. Yeah. Um, it's almost like they get treated a little bit less or it's not as taken seriously sometimes and it's almost like they treat it like, oh, it's their own fault that they're like this or something. It's Yeah, it's very strange and it can become almost a little bit, here, just take these drugs. You know, yeah. It's like a drug dealer, mm-hmm. drugs, 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 you know. Um, Sedation, yeah, absolutely. Without the support. They're only doing half the job. They they get the drugs but then the, the support needs to be a lot more and the support of the families need to be there a lot more. Well, I get, a, well. I get a sense that they're not even equipped to really deal with it. Even though they're learning seven years or eight years and they're very smart people, doctors and GPs, they're very smart and you obviously have psychiatrists and that who are, do that specifically. But you just think of it so prevalent of an issue, your training should be weighted more towards, you know, obviously you've got broken arms, broken legs, all that sort of stuff, but that should be, you'd think that'd be a large component of your um, training because that's what you're going to see a, a hell of a lot of with um, drug-induced psychosis, a lot with ice people in wards. You're going to have a lot of, you know, people with schizophrenia, these sorts of things. It's a very common thing. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon. So, but I get a sense that their training is not geared towards that at all. Absolutely, and also when you think about it, their training was seven years ago, uh, and that there's always mm. new, new th- ways of thinking. You know, new training, those sorts of things um, could be incorporated into learning more about bipolar 
Um, you know, even the causes of bipolar, for example, I, I can't find anything online um, about what causes bipolar, for example. It's just so many different factors. I think they don't really know. So it's just, okay, take these drugs and mm. we'll, we'll play it by ear. Well, the annoying yeah. one for me is they don't, they don't know how ECT works, yet they still do it. And, um, you know. Scary. <laughs> it's very scary, you know. And I've, I've seen long-term effects of ECT and, um, you know, it, and that, to not know how something works but you still prescribe it as a treatment um, is quite, um, is quite it's baffling to me. me. Yeah. yeah, it's just quite barbaric. I didn't even realise that they were still doing it, so that was news for me. Hmm. It does affect people. Like I've read there's a site online where it says bipolar, it says ECT doesn't have no proven long-term effects, which I just think is complete garbage, you know, from my... How did they know that? Well, yeah. I don't know how they know that, but that's from my only person experience. But you're right, the research and the stuff online, Carly, regarding bipolar, it seems to be a lot less in detail as opposed to the other, you know, your generic depression, your anxiety, where there's just organisation after organisation which almost seem to try and just monetize it with corporate programs and this and that now. Whereas these other issues, um, you know, that's why the whole point of doing this discussion is to try and sort of put our little footprint, I guess, into the into the digital space talking about this. Yeah. Now we hopefully need more people to do it. But just yourself personally, Carly, like how's your how are you going now with everything? Like how's your life in general? How how oh, how's it shaped that's you? Pretty good actually. Yeah. yeah. Um it took me a long time and a lot of years to become comfortable with myself, um, just, you know, emotionally and dealing with everything. And, I mean, for a lot of years I was, you know, scared that, you know, I would um, say something that sounded like my mum or do something that was similar to my mum and I would go, oh, maybe I've got bipolar too. <laughs> I don't want to be like that. So yeah. I had this sort of really conflicting um, emotions and, you know, I did go and see, you know, some psychiatrists who were quite, um, apt in bipolar diagnosis and those sort of things and they wouldn't give me the bipolar card. So <laughs> um, I do have general anxiety um, and I think based on what's happened in my life, that's kind of normal, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, apart from that, I I just I just go for it. I just get it like every day. Um, once I recovered from my depression after mum suicided, I just sort of decided then and there that, you know, I was going to live every day on behalf of, of my mum and for myself, um, just do lots of crazy things. I mean, I don't give up. Um, I love learning new things. Um, and I think I, I still see the magic and the wonder in the world, even if there's just a glint of it. Um, I try and look for that, you know, little bit of magic and wonder. Um, and, yeah, that's basically how I've coped. And also just talking to other people, you know, like you is a perfect example, um, other people going through similar things. Um, yeah, just sort of helping other people through their traumatic events makes me feel good, I guess, mm. yeah. And what, what have you found by doing that when you share your story? Are people surprised to learn that about you or what's your reactions been? <laughs> Most of the reaction is shock. It's like, shit really you've been through that mm. and you're still here and you're not on drugs and you're not an alcoholic and you're not this and I'm like no I mean I've had my moments where I've you know I've had the odd drink um but yeah I just I think it's important to have a few mentors along the way um like I had a few sort of mother figures that just popped up after mum died and they were quite instrumental in helping me get through um and just yeah 
I think that's an important point, Carly. There's there's a lot of good people out there, and especially with this situation, even if you don't get the support off the, the authorities or the people you think should be supporting you, there's always someone who's got a good heart who's who takes makes an effort or they go out of their way, you know, and they're the really important things that happen all all the time and people don't recognise, but they're the ones, you know, these friends' families or friends who know you or teachers or whatever, those little impact moments where they can really help you where they don't probably know they're doing it. Um, and it's it's people like that who and there's a lot of good people who who have done I'm sure good things like that for you uh, in That's your life has helped you fly. It's all those little things that count. Mm. Um, just having that that support and just getting out there. So pushing yourself when you're not feeling motivated, for example, mm. um, those sorts of things. And what do you do professionally now? Uh, lots of different. I've done yeah. so many different things over the years. It's another thing. I figured out that I've lived in 47 different houses since I've been born. There is. <laughs> so it's a lot. I'm like a modern day, mm. uh, what do they call it, nomad. Mm. Um, so, but, yeah, now I'm doing web design and app design. I never thought I'd be an app developer, but I've developed two apps. Um, what are those apps? Uh, they're actually dating apps. So, okay. All right. Yeah, a couple yep. of dating apps, so they're going quite well. Um yeah, I dabble in lots of different things. I'm about to go into the beverage business and make some nitro cold brew coffee. I like with, cold brew, yeah. It's good. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, but, lots of different things over the years. But would you say that, that as you said, that, that positive outlook at 19, which you just said, which is fantastic. Like I reckon a lot of people would go the other way. So to have that positive outlook is, is just unbelievable. But that positive attitude from there, that's been able to, without that sort of you wouldn't have been able to, going to do these sort of things or is it just the way you look at things well i want i'm interested in this i'm going to give it a go you know i'm going to use that yeah i'm not quite sure where it it came from Mm. um it's just this drive to just keep going and try something and try something until you find something that you really love and something that works for you um i've never never been one to fit into you know standard box you know you work for your whole life in one job and you buy a house and you do this. I'm quite sort of different thinking in that way. So I don't know if that's me naturally geared that way or how I've developed over the years. But, yeah, I like, you know, travelling. I've been to 21 countries. Um, You know, I can talk to anyone about pretty much anything. Um, Yeah, now it's sort of flipped the other way, whereas after I got over that initial depression with my mum's suicide, I just... I want to talk to more people now and I want to get out there and help other people and, yeah, I think that's because I've finally healed. Mm. Yeah. Now, good stuff, Carly. Um, <laughs> any final words before we wrap up today? Let's say there's a young person or an adult who might be listening to this but never told anyone or shared their story. Um, any advice for them? Oh, um, go easy on yourself. Um, look after yourself as well. Get Get help, even if it is friends or family. Um, uh, what else? Uh, yeah, I think just be patient with yourself and understand that it's it's not it's not your fault. And when your parents is in the, in those moments, um, to sort of not separate yourself from them, but just sort of detach a little bit from the episode it's very difficult to do but if you can detach say for me it was like um 
you know, if mum was having an episode, I'd be like, okay, this is not my mum in this moment, hmm. um, you know, with a big heart and compassion and everything. This is she's having an episode. So to learn how to separate that, I think, makes you cope or helps you, helped me cope a lot better with, with those episodes. Yeah. Well, thanks for reaching out, Carly, and sharing your story. Like it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing story you've got, um, you know, and to, to have all that trauma and, and to go on and be really successful as you are and, and just having a, having a crack and doing whatever and designing apps, you know, like I couldn't design, a, design an app. I work in digital stuff as well and I would never attempt an app. So to, to do that is a massive credit to you. But um, really thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts and, and reaching out and sharing your story. We hope that, um, you know, if someone's listening to this who wants to do it, they can do it as well. And we just document as many of your experiences as possible and hopefully we can start getting some more funding and changing the narrative towards, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia and, and, and children and families who are affected by those 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 conditions absolutely 100 percent on board i think it's important just to even follow help other people you know with our mum our mum's legacy basically mm. and just sort of push through no nice. thanks carly we'll leave it there thank you you're welcome thank you big thank you to carly baxter for being uh, so open and, and brave enough to share her lived experience on on the podcast it was great to chat with her and meet her and um yeah what a remarkable person to have all that sort of trauma and and lived experience with a parent with bipolar um, and then obviously uh, they chose to end their life to, to just to just go on and to be a successful person um, is, is quite remarkable and an amazing achievement um, and a credit to Carly and what she's done um, we need more of these stories so if you want to come on board please check the contact details in here and fill out the form if you would love to come on the lived experience I just want to get as many stories out there about this sort of stuff because I think that's what people need to hear from other real people as well not from you know, let's say really big celebrities or influencers, even though I would love to have them on as well if they've got a similar experience. But I think these more intense stories about what it's actually like living with someone who has bipolar or schizophrenia is what we need to hear more of so that we can hopefully help these people be supportive moving forward into the future. Um, the podcast has a website. So if you go to the link, I think it's um, the Lived Experience Podcast. I think it's com is the website. So you can go out there and leave us a review or feel free to leave us a review online wherever you do so. Got a lot of episodes coming out this week, so please make sure you check those out. And if you do like what you're hearing, the best thing you can do is actually share it with someone who might be able to benefit from the content. That will mean a lot to me. So until the next episode, guys, hopefully you're staying safe and have a really great week.